I met with Dr. Charles Blanke and asked him to review key papers related to other GI tumors presented at the meeting, and he began by commenting on a paper he presented on GIST. This was part of the B2222 randomized phase 2 trial that was actually done as a multicenter protocol beginning in the year 2000, and which recently was reported with about six years of uh, follow-up for patients. So it's one of the longest-running studies in advanced GIST. As a sub-study of that particular protocol, patients were prospectively divided by overall tumor bulk. Just as quick background, there is previous information that the largest single tumor may be prognostic at advanced GIST, and we know the size of the resected tumor is prognostic for recurrence in the, basically, if you're thinking about adjuvant treatment, but there was little data on overall tumor bulk. So again, data was prospectively collected on the 147 patients on this particular trial. This was a phase two trial randomized that looked at 400 milligrams of imatinib daily versus 600. It morphed several times, but there was a crossover from 400 to 600. Eventually, patients were allowed to go on to 800. And basically, the study was looking for a response. But there were a number of interesting correlative trials that were part of this. There were some interesting things involving a soluble kit. And it wound up being a fairly fertile study for other projects, including the one we're about to talk about. So just a couple additional pieces of background. If you look at the overall response rate for all patients on the trial, it was fairly high at about 68%, with actually very narrow 95% confidence intervals. So we really believe that that was the actual number. If you look at the overall response by tumor size, it didn't matter. Even the bulkiest tumors had a response rate that was essentially equivalent to the other three groups. So response was good for all of the groups. Similarly, if you look at the tumor control rate, which is response rate plus stable disease, it was essentially identical among the four quartiles. Where the patients with bulky tumors did worse was in terms of time to progression and overall survival. And there is no doubt the patients who had the smallest bulk did far better than the patients who had the largest bulk. But interestingly, if you look at the actual number of patients or percentage of patients who are alive at 64 months, it ranged from 62% for the very smallest tumors in terms of overall tumor area, but it was still 31% for the bulkiest tumors. And so basically, in our mind, that meant even if you were in the worst category, about a third of patients were long-term survivors with just treated with imatinib-methylate. And if you looked at multivariate analysis, having a smaller tumor bulk did predict for doing better. So the conclusions from this particular trial is even bulky tumors do respond well. Low tumor bulk is independently prognostic for survival, but even the bulkiest tumors had a median survival of three years and an estimated long-term survival of about 31%. So the bottom line is imatinib seemed to be the right drug even for the bulky tumors. Any implications, either in terms of daily patient care or research design and new trials? Well, the biggest implication, actually, a couple of interesting questions came up. When I was actually at the session, people came up and said, does that mean we should debulk patients before using imatinib? In other words, use surgery as an adjuvant to imatinib instead of the other way around. Believe it or not, that was actually proposed by one of the national surgical groups, and it fell off the table, but now it's back on again. And that's, of course, theoretical. It may just be a biologic phenomenon that you don't affect by removing tumor cells, but it also may make resistance less likely by getting rid of the resistant clones. So that was probably one of the most important implications, at least potential implications, of the trial. In terms of practical management on a day-to-day basis, it just means that everybody should get a matinub, or at least you shouldn't use bulk as a reason to pick a different drug.
There was another paper presented at a memorial on just looking at predictors of recurrence after resection. Can you talk about that? Sure. So it's abstract 55, a nomogram to predict recurrence after resection of primary gist. So the background to this particular paper is that if you have a patient who's been resected, you obviously want to predict whether or not they are going to recur. And there are really two fairly commonly used systems for predicting recurrence. One came out of an NIH GIST workshop. A bunch of us actually met in the year 2001 to try and decide who was at the highest risk. And that used basically two criteria, which were size and mitotic rate per 50 high-powered fields. Patients were divided by very low risk, low risk, intermediate risk, or high risk. The Armed Forces Institute of Pathology came up with a slightly different categorization where they looked at the same thing, size and mitotic rate, but they also looked at the site of origin because it's known that small intestinal tumors in general do worse than gastric tumors. And that particular scale divided patients into probably benign, uncertain, or probably malignant. And they're both relatively reasonable, but they're certainly not perfect in predicting recurrence. So these authors basically came up with a nomogram, and just for your listeners, a nomogram is a mathematical model that uses additive prognostic variables, and the reason it's nice is you can actually use it to predict risk for individual patients. So this group basically took 127 patients to build a model. They had follow-up of almost five years, and in that group, about a third had recurred. They took the known prognostic categories of size, tumor site, mitotic index, and they tried to come up with predicted two- and five-year relapse-free survival. The bottom line is you come up with a number known as the concordance, and what you want is a concordance of one, which means your system is perfect. And their system had a concordance of 0.8, which was actually dramatically higher than either the AFIP or the NIH systems. They actually looked at adding mutational analysis to the mix as a prognostic variable, and it didn't help at all. And so they felt that they had a system that was very good for predicting potential recurrence. What didn't come out of it, in my mind, is how the average person out in the community is going to use this. Is it going to go online and be a computer system where you can put the variables in? Is it something that's really ready for prime time? And I don't know the answer to that, but it was very interesting. Where are we right now in terms of adjuvant therapy for just tumors? That is a great question, and we've been answering that question the same way for several years. There are now a number of trials that are looking at adjuvant and matinib following resection of either high-risk or at least intermediate-risk tumors. Interestingly, they have had different durations of therapy, anywhere from zero to three years, this comparison of one versus three, zero versus two, zero versus one. All we know right now is that adjuvant imatinib is safe, but there's literally been no publication whatsoever of efficacy data. We do expect that fairly soon, and it's also likely that sunitinib is going to enter the adjuvant picture at some point as well. What about in a non-protocol setting right now? The experts differ. I just got back from the NCCN meeting where we talked about this, and there are investigators and researchers who use it in the high-risk setting. So if you have a tumor greater than 10 centimeters, you have greater than 10 mitoses for 50 high-powered fields, there are people who will recommend it or at least offer it. There are definitely other purists out there who point out that we have no data whatsoever that you might be breeding resistance and actually recommend against doing it off-study. So it's a very, very controversial area right now. How many new cases of GIST are diagnosed in the United States every year? And of those, how many get resected versus not? That is a slightly difficult question to answer. There's very good population data from Europe. 
And if you basically extrapolate the numbers they've come up with, and there's no real reason to think there'd be a difference by country of origin, we think there are probably about 5,000 clinically significant gists every year. There might be a few esophageal ditzels and things that aren't being caught. There actually are a couple of publications from the U.S. and pending publications from Canada that suggested a markedly lower incidence, maybe even on the order of 1,000 cases. The problem is if you look back at the phase three trial that was done, it put on 746 patients in a matter of months. And to be honest, it's extremely difficult for me to believe there are only 1,000 cases a year. I truly believe the number is somewhere between 4,000 and 8,000. And it's actually fairly reasonably split, probably a slightly higher proportion of people who are resected than people who have frank metastatic disease at presentation in the current era. Can you talk a little bit about some of the most exciting or interesting trials that are going on right now in GIST? Yes, this is a particularly exciting time to be a researcher in this area. So one of the issues remaining is something we talked about, which is should you or should you not use adjuvant therapy? But more importantly, we are seeing more and more emerging data on which patients do best with which drug. Now, right now, there are two FDA-approved drugs. There's imatinib and there's sunitinib, and they seem to work best in vastly different populations, either those with exon 11 for the imatinib and those with exon 9 for sunitinib. And what that implies to me is someday we are going to do mutational analysis on all patients. We're only doing it on about 3% right now, but eventually we may do it on all patients, and we may use that information to pick the best drug for the individual patient. We're also seeing a number of new drugs emerging in GIST, and a lot of this will be presented at ASCO, including drugs like serafinib and desatinib and nilotinib. So there are a number of new targeted agents coming down the pike, and the heat shock protein inhibitors have looked very exciting as well. So it's no longer just the world of imatinib and sunitinib. We are seeing a number of emerging drugs. Other interesting things are emerging. A lot of people are approaching this disease as a lifelong always systemic disease. So some of the future adjuvant trials are not just going to look at drug yes or no. They're going to look at long duration of drug, like even five or 10 years, transforming the breast cancer model into GIST or vice versa. So that's a particularly exciting area. And I think imaging remains fairly hot as well in terms of how we can best use PET scan to determine a response, whether we could change management of a patient based on response or lack of response using PET. And that's going to be incorporated into future trials as well. Do we know more about why those specific mutations seem to be correlated with the treatment response with these two agents? We don't. It obviously may have potential to do with the mechanism of action with sunitinib having a more angiogenic effect, but we really don't know that much about what actually causes either primary resistance defined as failing within six months of therapy or secondary resistance. We do know that simple gene amplification, which is seen in other diseases that respond to these drugs, is not the mechanism, but we really just don't know enough yet. Let's talk about the gastric papers. Maybe we can start out talking about Abstract 39. Can you talk about Absolutely. that? Absolutely. So Abstract 39 was oxaliplatin plus Fulfox 7 as neoadjuvant and adjuvant treatment versus adjuvant alone in locally advanced resectable gastric cancer. This was basically fairly early results of a study that came out of Beijing. And basically, the background was that ECF, or epirubicin cisplatin 5-FU, is highly effective in advanced disease at downstaging, and there is a known survival benefit for that regimen, even though it hasn't really caught on in the U.S. particularly well at this particular time. In any case, this was a so-called parallel-controlled phase 2 trial And basically, they were all potentially resectable gastric cancer. The patients on arm A got two to six cycles of preoperative full FOX7 
And just to remind your audience, that's the full fox regimen that has very high doses of oxaliplatin, very high rate of neuropathy. And they were basically matched to controls on arm B who only got post-operative full FOX7. And then the patients on arm A got full FOX on both ends as well as surgery. They planned on 300 total patients, but they really reported with only 81 at this time, fairly equal numbers between arms. And these 81 patients basically had R0 resections or margin negative. Basically, if you look at the response rate for neoadjuvant full FOX, it was quite high at 59%. And it was reasonably well tolerated with no grade four events. What they said is if you look at the ratio of patients or the number basically who have R0 resections, it was higher with neoadjuvant therapy. It was 63% on arm A versus 52% on arm B. And the bottom line is they felt that this trial has encouraging efficacy with acceptable toxicity, and it'll be ready for a full presentation in the year 2009. So there's nothing shocking here. I mean, I think the results are very believable, but I wouldn't use that particular full FOX regimen. What's your perception right now about how gastric cancer is being managed right now in the United States? And what are the trials that are looking to move things forward? It's all over the map because, again, ECF really is used in many parts of the world, pretty much outside of the U.S., with good survival data compared to other standard regimens. The problem is there are experts, particularly coming out of Texas, who think that it's a bad regimen for a variety of reasons. And this one particular group has tended to use taxatier-based therapy. The taxotere-based triplets have an extremely high response rate, but they also have an extremely high toxicity rate that exceeds 80%. And to be honest, I don't think there is a standard metastatic regimen in this country. We know the chemotherapy prolongs survival versus best supportive care. There have been a number of trials that show that. We know these patients should get chemotherapy, but there's no standard. And my secret prediction is that Folfox may become that standard someday. What specifically are some of the regimens that people are utilizing? So the DCF regimen, which is the one that has the docetaxel added to cisplatin 5-FU, good old-fashioned cisplatin 5-FU is still used by some investigators and treating physicians. And to be honest, if a patient is slightly less fit, there are a number of people who are still using single-agent capecitabine as well. And there are other purists who use ECF if possible, but it's somewhat difficult on the bone marrow. What do we know about oxaliplatin right now in gastric cancer? We know that we have a number of basically early phase, phase two trials that show that it's efficacious in combination with a fluoropyrimidine. We know that it's well tolerated. Any ways to indirectly compare that to what we see with, say, cis? Well, I think if you look across the board, the toxicity profile is better for the full FOX regimens. The problem is everything's different. The 5-FU is very different than giving it in the old-fashioned four or five-day large slug over 24 hours times five But I think there's just little doubt that oxaliplatin is a friendlier platinum than cisplatin, and that's where the real benefit is coming from. It's also safer to give if patients have hepatic dysfunction. It's not safer than cis-5-FU, but it's a pretty safe regimen in general. What about adjuvant therapy? What are people doing there? Adjuvant's a little more challenging. The standard of care in our country is post-operative therapy with chemoradiation. The standard in the rest of the world, or at least large portions of it, is neoadjuvant and adjuvant chemotherapy based on the MAGIC trial. I don't think there is any single regimen that has truly caught on. ECF is being tested in this country in the intergroup, but again, because it's such an unpopular regimen, that trial is withering on the vine and accruing extremely poorly. Mixing things with radiation makes it more difficult. And remember that the original SWAG trial that Jack McDonald presented that showed a benefit used the old Mayo regimen, which is highly toxic and nobody uses. So I myself use continuous infusion during the RT But there are definitely selected patients who will use neoadjuvant chemo followed by postoperative chemo, 
and I either use ECF or full FOX. Another paper was Abstract 51, looking at capecitabine and arena tecan. Can you comment on that? I can. So again, I'll just give some background. That same Cunningham group has now tested capecitabine in gastric cancer and shown it to be a very reasonable substitution for continuous infusion 5-FU. This particular trial was a phase two study of biweekly oral capecitabine plus arenotecan, known as bezaliri. It was for patients basically who had incurable gastric cancer, and their background was that arenotecan and the fluoropyrimidines are synergistic. And so they took patients who were allowed to have previous adjuvant therapy. They could actually be relatively sickly with an ECOG of up to two, and they gave arenotecan on a day one, day 15 basis, They gave Zolota or capecitabine at a slightly lower, perhaps, than the audience might be familiar with, dose of 1750 per meter squared. And then they gave it for seven days on and seven days off, and they repeated the cycles every 28 days. It was a modestly large study at 55 patients, and the primary objective was response. Basically, about 21% of people had grade 3 or 4 neutropenia. There was fairly low-grade GI toxicity, such as nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, and about 11% of people had noticeable hand-foot syndrome. This trial actually had fairly interesting results with an overall survival of 11 months, certainly better than historical patients, especially if you allow PS2 on, and the time to progression was five months. The authors were actually relatively modest themselves, suggesting that this basically had moderate activity. But I think the numbers are actually fairly encouraging. Where do you think things are heading in terms of this type of approach? That's a toughie. There have been publications out of America that suggested that 5-FU cisplatin regimens actually didn't work very well and were very toxic. However, more recent publications clearly show that arenotecan is an active drug. Nonetheless, I don't personally believe a lot of people are using it up front in the U.S. I think it might be better suited to the salvage setting. What about paper 52, abstract 52, looking at the flawed FLOD regimen for gastric cancer? 52 is challenging. So 52 was a phase two study of weekly 24-hour FUDR, leucovorin, oxaliplatin, and docetaxel as first-line treatment of patients with metastatic disease. And basically, it used the drugs we just mentioned every 28 days, had a lot of potential objectives, including response, progression-free, and overall survival, feasibility, and toxicity. It was reported with very small numbers, basically 18 patients of a plan 26, and they were pretty healthy. At least half of them had a PS of zero, which is fairly remarkable for this patient population. I thought it was a modestly toxic regimen and had a 33% rate of grade three toxicity. There was a lot of diarrhea, fatigue, nausea, but only 5% had grade four neutropenia. 15 patients were evaluable, and about half of them had an objective response rate or one CR. Confidence intervals were super wide at 27 to 79%. Now, interestingly, a fifth of patients, or 22%, became resectable. And they actually went on to surgery and adjuvant flawed, if you will. And they also pointed out that 57% were progression-free at six months, 10% at one year. And progression-free survival was seven months with a median survival of 9.5 months. I'm not sure those two numbers are entirely reconcilable. They felt that this regimen was both feasible and acceptable in terms of toxicity. I don't see any great advantage to FUDR, and certainly nobody really uses it on any practical basis except perhaps for hepatic infusion, which you wouldn't do in this population anyway. Again, it does use taxotere, which is becoming extremely popular in this country, and it's interesting that it was combined with oxaliplatin. The median survival was slightly better than you might expect historically, but I'd point out this was a very highly selected group of patients with a PS of zero. I just wanted to mention that obviously H. pylori is potentially causative of gastric malignancy, And there's going to be a 
really huge multinational, multi-country effort to basically eradicate H. pylori in the Western Hemisphere and find out what that does to gastric cancer rates. There's going to be a feasibility study that's going to take place with a number of countries from both North and Central America. And basically, if it looks feasible, it's going to lead to a randomized 50,000 patient study to see if we truly can dramatically decrease the rates of gastric cancer in this hemisphere. So I think that actually is one of the more exciting things in the far future. And what kind of people are going to be targeted? Basically, anybody at risk. So people who already have H. pylori, but are still fairly young and have time to develop the malignancy. Really what it's going to be looking at is what's sort of the minimum we can get away with because a lot of these people live in the mountains, see a doctor literally once in their entire life. And so the feasibility question as to whether we can even get them antibiotics is huge. But I think, again, it's entirely likely that gastric cancer is a highly preventable malignancy. And as we already talked about, it's not necessarily all that treatable, although there is a survival benefit with chemotherapy. What about in Japan? Is that as much of an issue? The major difference between gastric cancer in Japan and gastric cancer in the U.S. is the markedly higher cure rates with surgery. And it's really a very important note to your listeners not to compare results of Japanese trials to results of American trials. And to be honest, we don't know if there is something biologically different about the cancer, something biologically different about the patient, which is entirely feasible based on racial differences, or to be honest, whether their surgeons are just better, although I think the latter is probably not the reason. But they just do better with this disease than we do, and it seems to me they do better with even chemotherapy than we do. Let's talk a little bit about pancreatic cancer and one in particular, Abstract 108, uh, CALGB study. So Abstract 108 was a double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized phase 3 trial of gemcitabine with or without bevacizumab in patients with incurable pancreatic cancer. It was a CALGB trial presented by Hetty Kindler out of the University of Chicago, and certainly one of the most eagerly awaited studies. Basically, in my opinion, the drug that's never lost went up against the disease that's never lost, and unfortunately, the disease actually won. This trial basically showed no benefit whatsoever to adding bevacizumab to gemcitabine over gemcitabine alone. It didn't add a lot of toxicity, but it didn't matter because it didn't help, and that was both a little bit shocking and, more importantly, extremely disappointing. But it doesn't even leave the door open to really use bevacizumab alone with gemcitabine. What about abstract 128 looking at so-called gemoxet? Abstract 128 looked at cetuximab with gemox in first-line patients with metastatic pancreatic cancer. This was a multicenter phase 2 Simon two-stage design Its background was that EGFR seems to be a particularly attractive target, that's the epidermal growth factor receptor, in pancreatic cancer. This was a very straightforward phase two trial. The primary endpoint was objective response using RESIST. It used fairly standard day one, day two GEMOX. It used cetuximab at 250 per meter squared weekly. And interestingly, it did not allow patients with locally advanced disease. It was purely metastatic. They did not have to be EGFR positive, though they had to have basically tissue for testing, and it had to be, quote, possible. They had 43 evaluable patients, did not comment on their performance status, which was a little bit of a weakness of the trial. There really wasn't a lot of grade 3-4 toxicity. There was some anemia, thrombocytopenia, and leukopenia. About one out of five patients had modest to severe problems with nausea, and half the patients had grade 1 or 2 rash. The objective response rate was actually fairly high at 38%, but the confidence intervals were extremely wide, as you might imagine. 
The time to progression, though, was 155 days, which translates to approximately five months. They felt that it was feasible, promising, had a high response rate, and had moderate toxicity. I think the fact is we're going to have a randomized phase three trial using cetuximab with GEM, not with the OX. And so I would certainly wait for that particular trial before I recommended the use of cetuximab in this disease. What about paper number 187? So paper 187 was a phase two study of bevacizumab and erlotinib in gemcitabine refractory metastatic pancreatic cancer. Notice it's basically a trial of biologic agents and doesn't include chemotherapy. This trial had as its primary objective overall survival at six months and safety. And again, it didn't allow locally advanced disease. These could be fairly heavily pretreated patients. They were allowed up to three previous regimens, of which at least one had to include gemcitabine. They could have had either a prior VEGF inhibitor or an EGFR inhibitor, but not both. And it used the 15 milligram per kilogram dose of bevacizumab every three weeks and a standard dose of erlotinib at 150. The numbers, unfortunately, were very, very small at basically 13 patients, of whom six had had previous targeted therapy. As you can imagine, it was a fairly well-tolerated combination. There was one episode of grade 3 hypertension, one grade 3 bleed, one hemorrhage into Ebola, and some asthenia. And basically, they saw one partial response in three patients who had stable disease for at least six weeks, so basically a third of patients. They felt things were safe and moderately effective, and they plan accrual to 40 patients. And this is something that is definitely worth keeping an eye out, in my opinion. If we could get by in a fairly sick population with no chemotherapy, that would be wonderful. Certainly, if patients are going to start getting erlotinib front line, though, it raises the question of how well they would do with the drug second line, and we don't have an answer to that particular question. But this was one of the more intriguing papers. It's just that the numbers were very small. Where are we right now in terms of non-protocol management of pancreatic cancer for second, third-line therapy? Well, first line, I would argue the standard of care is either gemcitabine plus erlotinib. There was a British paper that showed a potential benefit with capecitabine, even though a number of other trials have shown no benefit to adding a fluoropyrimidine, and that's an acceptable regimen. And certainly, a single-agent gemcitabine is an absolute reasonable standard, particularly in patients with poor performance status. As a side note, and not really discussed as a concept by itself at this meeting, the GEMOX question, I think, still might be on the table. We were all extremely disappointed when the ECOG randomized phase three trial did not show an advantage, but there now have been a number of meetings that have presented either meta-analysis or retrospective analyses of GEMOX, and it's looking to me like both cisplatinum and oxaliplatin do work well in patients who have an absolutely excellent performance status. And I don't think it's just patient selection because patients who get platinum with good PS do better than patients who just get gem with good PS. And there was one particular meta-analysis that I'd like to talk about shortly that also suggested that that doublet is a very good idea in people who are healthy. Can you talk about that meta-analysis? Sure. This was my favorite presentation at the meeting. It was really, really interesting. So the purpose of this meta-analysis was to, quote, define the role of combination therapy, unquote, in advanced pancreatic cancer. And they basically looked at 15 studies that had GEM versus GEM plus X. That's Jordan Berlin's favorite line as the chair of the meeting. And they basically looked at 4,200 patients, 4,242, with a primary objective of overall survival. Now, I will say that this was based on published data, so there might be some publication bias here. But basically, they looked at various combinations. If you look at fluoropyrimidine with GEM, that did better than GEM alone. Hazard ratio was 0.9, p-value 0.03. If you look at capecitabine specifically with GEM, again, statistically significant, p-value hazard ratio of 0.83. 
Interestingly, if you looked at other things that include a rhinotecan, which had a brief heyday in this disease, but then kind of went by the wayside, hazard ratio was 0.99, obviously not statistically significant. But if you look at the platinum compounds, they did the best in combination with gemcitabine with a hazard ratio of 0.85, p-value of 0.01. Now, they also did an extremely interesting analysis that sort of echoes what I said before. If you look at people who had a KPS, Karnofsky performance status of 90 to 100, Combination therapy had a hazard ratio of 0.76, so a marked reduction in basically the risk of dying from pancreatic cancer with a p-value of less than 0.0001. But also echoing what I think we all see in the clinic, if patients had a KPS of 60 to 80, or in other words, poor performance status, the hazard ratio is actually greater than one. So in fact, you might even be harming these patients. So they felt a combination therapy is better but it only helps people with good PS. And if they have poor PS, you should give them gemcitabine alone. And I would strongly echo those recommendations. What specifically are you generally doing in a non-protocol situation with the patients with good performance status? If they are healthy as a horse, I do give them gemox. And I have now had patients living well more than a year, year and a half. I've also had several objective responses, which I have never seen with gemcitabine alone. I've also never had a patient live that long. And what's your next therapy? Now, that's a great question. So what do we use for salvage in a patient who's received GEM or GEMOX? I tend to use single-agent capecitabine, and I think the best we're probably hoping for is prolonged stable disease. But we do see that every once in a while. And then third line, if we ever get that lucky, would probably be a taxane. What about erlotinib? If I have somebody who is a sort of borderline performance status, not poor, but borderline, I will use gemcitabine and erlotinib frontline. I do not continue it once they have failed, and I don't use it as a single-agent drug. Let's talk a little bit about locally advanced pancreatic cancer. What were your thoughts about Abstract 157? So Abstract 157 was an interesting paper. It was a phase 1-2 study of induction oxaliplatin, 5-FU, and chemoradiation in patients with incurable locally advanced but not metastatic pancreatic cancer. It basically took weekly oxaliplatin in five cohorts ranging from 30 milligrams per meter squared up to 60 per meter squared. They used a continuous infusion of 5-FU at 200 milligrams per meter squared daily, and they used 50-40 of radiation therapy. They then gave patients a break and then gave a modified full FOX6 for six cycles. Now, patients were not allowed to have previous therapy, and they had to have an excellent performance status at less than or equal to one Basically, what I can tell you is the numbers were small, but they did complete the phase one portion, and there was only one dose-limiting toxicity, which was thrombocytopenia, and they got up to full-dose oxaliplatin. They basically felt that it was well-tolerated and no worse than standard treatment, and so they planned to commence the phase two trial. And I think, although we don't have a lot of data in this setting, we are seeing oxaliplatin being used with radiation in other GI sites, including rectal cancer, much more commonly in both esophagus and gastric. And so it makes some sense to move it into the pancreatic setting where I think it does have some activity. And I found this to be an intriguing paper, but I definitely would like to see the phase two. What about paper 159? So paper 159 looked at a phase two trial of capecitabine and docetaxel as salvage therapy for those who had failed gemcitabine. Again, it's a phase two study based on preclinical synergy, and it had a fairly high bar as its primary objective, which was response Patients basically had to have measurable locally advanced or metastatic disease, and they were allowed to have a fairly poor PS of 0 to 2 on the ECOG system. 
basically they did have a fairly healthy population despite that eligibility with the overwhelming majority having an ECOG PS of one or less. But they did see some responses with an ORR objective response rate of 14%. They also had half the patients have a major drop in their CA199 levels, although it's a little difficult to know what that really means. It was actually extremely well tolerated with about 15, 16% of patients having significant fatigue and a smattering of hand-foot syndrome. But they felt that this was a both active and well-tolerated regimen, and they hope to have the overall survival data soon. So it does use two drugs that I myself use in the salvage setting. I tend to use them sequentially. They used them together and didn't really show marked worsening of toxicity. So if the survival looks good, that would be a pretty reasonable regimen to use. Could you talk a little bit about paper 202? Certainly. So Abstract 202 looked at erlotinib as a single-agent therapy in patients with advanced pancreatic cancer. This would be a particularly attractive strategy, particularly in the patients who have extremely poor performance status. Again, we discussed the fact that erlotinib in combination with gemcitabine has activity and represents a standard of care treatment in this particular country. Basically, this trial took patients with either locally advanced or metastatic pancreatic adenocarcinoma they had to have at least one or more rounds of systemic chemotherapy, and they were allowed to have a performance status of zero to two. They basically took standard dose or latinum at 150 milligrams per day, and they were allowed to continue until disease progression or toxicity. The trial was interesting because it really looked at a so-called clinical evaluation, which basically was the old clinical benefit response, so feeling better, perhaps going off narcotics, increasing activity. And they also looked at tumor markers. Only the rare patient actually underwent full imaging as well. And they used the usual CTC3, I believe, to assess toxicity. So the bottom line was patients were treated anywhere from three weeks up to about 12 months or so. The median was, I think, fairly short at two months for this particular patient population. A couple of patients had to be dose-reduced because of toxicity. And if you look at their symptomatic evaluation, about a third of the patients had a mild improvement, but the same number had clinical deterioration, and a couple of them were stable. If you look at tumor markers, some of them did have a decrease, basically five patients between 31 and 95%, and it was relatively long-lasting in some up to eight months. And if you look, basically they felt that five patients had either clinical improvement or stabilization and decrease in tumor markers, and again, that lasted up to one year. The side effects were fairly minor. There was low-grade rash, diarrhea, vomiting, and fatigue. They felt that it does have anti-tumor activity as a single agent, but really what they were looking at was production of disease stabilization with a clinical improvement. And I'm not entirely sure I would use it as a single agent in this population based on this particular trial. You talked before about using GEM or Lotnib in your patients who are maybe not perfect performance status, but not that terrible. Is there a step down from that where you might use erlotinib alone? No. To be honest, if I step down from that, I would use gemcitabine alone. I think it remains the backbone of all proven effective regimens. It remains the standard of care. And I will be frank and tell you that other experts differ, but I have found single-agent gemcitabine to be very well tolerated, even in PS3 patients. And a patient would essentially have to be moribund imminently for me not to offer it at all. Roughly in your own experience, what fraction of patients overall with metastatic disease that receive GEM 
do you think are obtaining an anti-tumor benefit, including real stable disease? No, I think it's a great question. Recall that it was approved by the FDA, not so much because patients were living longer, which would imply they had stable disease. It was approved because 25% of patients had this so-called clinical benefit response, if you will, where they went off narcotics, maybe started gaining weight, maybe went back to work. So I sort of quote this number of one out of four patients will have a fairly dramatic improvement, and that pretty much matches my clinical experience. Can you talk a little bit about Abstract 74? I can. Abstract 74 was an extremely interesting analysis of thromboembolic events as part of the real two randomized study that looked at four chemotherapeutic regimens for upper GI, specifically esophageal and gastric cancer. We've known for a long time that patients with GI malignancies particularly adenocarcinomas, have a very high rate of baseline thrombotic events. And there has been the speculation that chemotherapy may actually worsen that. So REAL2 looked at ECF, a regimen we have talked about today, versus ECX versus EOF versus EOX. So it looked at capecitabine versus IV5FU, which also has the implication of looking at the venous access device. And it looked at oxaliplatin versus cisplatin. And basically, the objective of the trial was to determine the rate of thromboembolism across all patients given chemotherapy, to look at venous and arterial thromboembolism, and to look at survival based on whether this happened to patients or not. And so they defined venous events as DVT, pulmonary embolism, portal vein thrombosis, or central venous access device related. And arterial were things like CVAs, acute coronary syndromes, and very serious events like arterial ischemia. And so a couple of really interesting things came out of this particular trial. They basically showed that the overall frequency of thromboembolic events was 11.4%. And again, that matches a number of other trials that have shown events ranging between basically 10% and 25%. They showed that there was a significantly lower incidence of events on the oxaliplatin-containing arm compared to cisplatin. And this probably matches our knowledge of cisplatin, which is that that particular drug can damage blood vessels and may predispose people towards thromboembolic events. They also found out that a lot of the thromboembolic events were related to central venous catheters. And so the ECF arm had a particularly high frequency of events, and it may argue for the use of capecitabine. And finally, they suggested that there was a difference in survival between those who did have these events and those who did not. I'm not sure how we would use that information practically, but it just reminds me that we need to watch out for these type of events in patients. We need to be careful in which drugs we pick in people who are at high risk of events, and we need to be particularly careful if we are going to use a central venous line. Is esophagogastric cancer a different entity than either esophageal or gastric cancer? Well, it's just a very interesting question, and one that we should really think about in terms of who's going on to these trials. So if you look at purely esophageal trials, those tend to include the entire esophagus, and then they occasionally use the GE junction. If you look at gastric cancer trials that specifically say gastric, it's usually distal stomach, and occasionally they will include the proximal stomach. The problem is these tumors may be biologically different. And all I can say, particularly if you look at, say, GE junction versus distal stomach, it's really important for anybody looking at these trials to realize they're different actors, different agents react differently in these patient populations. There are things that work in esophagus that don't work in stomach. 
And so there's some difference, particularly with the biologic targeted therapies, and you most certainly should not extrapolate. If you see a positive result from a gastric trial, you should not automatically use one of those agents in an esophageal patient. GE junction is a little bit different, and it might or might not be extrapolatable to both populations. Anything else you want to say about anything else that was presented at the meeting? I think the big issues that really emerged from the meeting is, again, Fulfox has now moved from being a standard of care in lower GI malignancies and is encroaching upon the upper GI tract. That's very exciting. It's also being much more commonly used with irradiation in a variety of GI sites. And again, I just personally believe that oxaliplatin is a much easier to use and probably more efficacious platinum than cisplatin is and probably then carboplatin as well. So that wasn't ground-shaking, but it was actually very important information to come out of this particular meeting. We're seeing a lot more use of targeted therapies in conjunction with chemotherapy, and more importantly, we're seeing either combinations of targeted therapies or single-agent targeted therapies in patients who are a little bit more ill. And I do think, in general, the upper GI patients are sicker than the lower GI patients across the board. So those were sort of the things that came out of the meeting. This concludes our program. Special thanks to our speakers and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Cancer Conference Update.